I want to draw your attention to one verse in Hebrews chapter 4 as we start this morning. If you have your Bible, it's Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. And I'm going to read it for us again. No creature is hidden from God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All right, the children will help us. I think they'll know the answer to this. Do you remember when someone tried to hide from God in the Bible? Does anyone remember when someone tried to hide from God? It's the story of Adam and Eve. It's the first people, the first humans. And that story, it's about them, but it's also about us. Adam and Eve disobey God, and then they feel ashamed, not just about what they did when they ate the fruit. Um, they did not realize that something else would happen when they ate the fruit. They just thought it would taste good, but eating the fruit actually made them see themselves and each other in entirely different ways. So they feel the need to cover themselves up all of a sudden, to hide their bodies from each other. So they make a covering for themselves. Uh, obviously, though, the covering didn't work, not just because God sees them. Even Adam thought it covered too little of him because when he hears God, he hides and God asks him why he's hiding. And Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. The fig leaf, in other words, has not solved the problem. It's not large enough to cover everything. Now, I, I want to make a point here that um, this is the first time it's setting up a pattern when humans disobey God, they try to solve the problem themselves. They try some form of work to solve the problem. And Hebrews is going to say that when we come into the rest of God, we rest from our works. We're no longer trying to solve the problem ourselves. Now, I want you to notice something bigger that's happened in that story, though, about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had never worried about a single thing up until this point. Not a single thing. They lived a life of harmony with each other and the world around them. And it was, it was a good life. They did not have to fret. But disobedience changes all of that. They begin to live in shame and in hiding. And you could call it a state of unrest. There's this fretting about what to do. They can't look at each other. They're afraid of each other. What if God comes, shows up, and finds out about this? They're in a state of unrest. Unrest in their souls and in their bodies. Now the story continues with God asking Adam what's happened. Who told him he was naked? Now th this is funny to me. And it might reveal my maturity level. I don't know. Adam did not even know before that he was naked. And this little detail that Adam didn't even realize he was in his birthday suit and God was totally fine about that. God did not want Adam to be worrying about that. This should tell us that there are lots of things that God does not want his children worrying about. He doesn't even want you to be aware of them. He wants you to know that he's going to take care of things. You don't have to worry. Now, Adam then has to tell God what's happened. He has to give an account 
just like Hebrews says that every person will have to do. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, all of us are going to have to tell God what's happened with our lives. We're going to have to tell him what's happened. But the story of Adam and Eve doesn't end there with Adam giving his account, thankfully. God informs Adam and Eve of how much things are going to change because of this. But the most significant thing that happens is that God makes new clothing for Adam and Eve. Remember, the fig leaf didn't cut it. They were far from sufficient. So God makes them clothing out of animal skin. And this introduces a theme that's going to be at the center of the rest of the Bible. And the theme is that to be made right, disobedience has a cost. Listen, disobedience comes with a cost. And in order for it to be made right, there has to be some payment, some restitution. I don't know if we realize this. Uh, I was in Chicago. Chicago, we flew back yesterday from a conference, and we were at the waterfront yesterday at Lake Michigan. I'd never seen it before, but there were these pieces of art of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., and on the sides of them it said, demand justice. And in one sense, I see that and say, yeah, that's right. We, we do absolutely need to insist on justice and on rightness on the societal level. And on the other hand, I really wonder whether any of us would say that for our own lives. God, give me your justice. What would that mean for us? This is the first thing in this story, that disobedience has a cost. But there's another side to this. Beyond the fact that disobedience has a cost, God is the only one who can pay the cost. And that's why he is the one who must clothe Adam and Eve. It's the first sacrifice that happens there. So just so you know, Eden is a temple. Eden, the Garden of Eden was a temple. And so God, it's the first time that, sp that death is spoken of, of animals, a, a physical death. And God takes them. He makes a sacrifice in the temple to cover the sin of human beings. And this sets the tone for the rest of Scripture the story of the Bible, and the story of the world. Now, Andrew shared last week that we're going to be listening to the book of Hebrews for several weeks, and he highlighted some of the situation in the book of Hebrews. And I want to reiterate this for us this morning. Uh, the, the people this book is written to, this letter, have made a radical choice in the past to follow Jesus as their Lord. Listen, this was not the thing to do in their world. Confessing Jesus as Lord would have meant turning their allegiance completely to him, following his commands about caring for the poor and the vulnerable, and following his commands about holiness of life. And what this meant is that they would begin to be viewed basically as disturbers of the peace in their society because they held views that the majority didn't. So Rome would only allow people to worship certain gods. And if you worshipped other gods, you became, became a disturber of the peace because you didn't hold to the same views that everyone else did. So this is the cost for these people. 
in confessing Jesus as their Lord. They don't fit in. And the society looks at them as enemies of the state. Now the writer later tells these people to remember what it was like when they first confessed Jesus as the Son of God. You endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to ridicule and pain. You had compassion on those in prison. And you even joyfully accepted the theft of your property because you knew that you had a better possession, an abiding one. So these people have paid the price for following Jesus. But more recently, they've begun to waver in their faith. We don't know exactly why, but overall it seems like the, the just accumulated pressure from the outside has been wearying for them. And we all know this. There's a weariness that comes with being the odd one out. It takes a toll. Carrying on like that indefinitely can be exhausting. And it, it gets easy to start making little compromises to fit in, not be the odd one out. But eventually, the small compromises accumulate and they have a large impact. The faith that was once professed and the life that was once lived begins to change. You begin to backslide into the way of the, state, the community. But this writer, he clearly loves this group of people. He knows them very well. There are several times in the book of Hebrews, if you pay close attention, where he speaks to that every one of them would continue in the faith. Like he seems to have knowledge of every one of the people in this body of Christians. And so he's calling them continually to an endurance. He calls them not to give up hope, but to continue in obedience to God. Now, in our passage today, Hebrews chapter 4, there are four places where he invites them to join him in something. He actually is pleading with them to join him in endurance and in continuing in the faith. And so I want to point these four places out to you. And if you happen to underline in your Bible, I encourage you to mark these. The first is in verse 1. He says to them, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear. That's the first invitation. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Lest any of you, he knows all of them, and he's saying, I don't want any of you to fail to reach this rest that God has promised. Now, why is he saying this? Why is he saying, let us fear? He says it because he's concerned that they've lulled themselves into thinking there's no risk and no potential loss in letting go of their faith and walking away from the confession they made. So he uses the story of the children of Israel to try to make clear for them that there is actually a great risk in letting go of your faith. There's a potential loss in letting go of your faith. And you should have an appropriate amount of fear or concern about what's going to happen to you if you begin to waver from your faith. The children of Israel were promised a land of rest, but they repeatedly refused to trust God. And so they died still wandering, never receiving the promise that God made to them. And there's something for us in this call to fear this invitation, this plea to fear. There's this strange thing that's happened where some of us have had this very angry picture of God that's, that was formed in our minds 
And our fear of him became this very dark, morbid type of fear. We might have lived with a constant sense of overwhelming guilt that we could never do right, or a sense that God is always angry with us. And not only that, but he could never completely love or forgive us. I've talked to people who've grown up in the church who, that, that for some reason, that was how God's character became twisted in their minds. He was always angry. They could never be fully loved or forgiven. But strangely, on a cultural level, that image of God has been deconstructed to an opposite extreme, where God can never be anything but affirming of us. His love can have no sharp edges, and he never corrects, he only approves. What the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do is something very different than either of those. It's not a picture of God as an ogre. Not at all. But we are told that there's a risk with God. He's not telling them to be anxious all the time. To believe that God is only a judge. Only. This is how we twist it in our minds. This is the way Satan twists it in our minds. He's telling them rather. Have reverence for God and for his holiness. Recognize that his purity of love means that he must hate what's evil. If God is the one who is, has perfect love, then he must hate what's evil. So where are you? Well, how does this fit with your life? What is your image of the character of God? What does it mean for you to fear him? Do you fear him? Is there a sense that if you were to walk away from your faith, there could be a great loss? That something could happen that would not be good for you. Have you believed in false images of God? One only of wrath or one only of affirming love? We need to have a reverence for God. A respect for his purity and his holiness. That's why he's calling them to fear. They've lulled themselves into believing there's nothing to fear. I can let go of this and nothing would change. Now, the second invitation or plea that the writer makes is verse 11 of Hebrews 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's this tension in the Christian life. And the writer is expressing this tension in this passage where he says, let us therefore strive to enter rest. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That to really find rest takes effort. It takes energy. He's saying that following God and finding God, even the rest of God, will take work and effort. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've, had essentially, we've essentially had to paddle upstream and swim against the tide to reach the place of God's rest. Now, the children of Israel, again, serve as an example. They fell into a pattern of distrust, of complaining against God. As soon as they got across the Red Sea, they started complaining. And it wasn't only then, it was repeatedly after that. They distrusted God, and they disobeyed Him. And this led to a group of them dying in the wilderness and never entering the land of rest. And they're meant to serve as a, neg a negative example. Disobedience will diminish your life. It will. 
It creates a perpetual unrest in your soul. You will never be at rest if you're walking away from God. And it does lead to judgment. Your life will be diminished by your failure to walk with God and to obey Him. And eventually, that will lead to a judgment on your life. You will have to give an account. And if you have known what it meant to obey God, and you've continually refused that, then demanding justice would mean that God will judge you for your sin. So I want to ask you, if you are in a pattern of disobedience in your life, will you come to God with that? We're going to talk about this more at the end. But will you turn around and will you walk the other way? It's going to take work. But I'm going to point this out more. You will not do it alone. It's not a work that you'll carry alone. Now the fourth plea, no, excuse me, the third plea is in verse 14. And it's this, let us hold fast our confession. And the writer uses this repeatedly throughout the letter of Hebrews. He's going to say it in chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Listen, you need to know, Christian, if you were baptized and professed faith in Jesus as the Son of God, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you did not make this up. This is not a fairy tale that you professed faith in. It is the most real thing in all the world. Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens and intercedes for you. And you are professing faith in a God who has promised to redeem you and redeem the world. And he will do that. Hold fast your confession of faith without wavering. And this is not just a verbal profession that you make. Jesus as the Son of God. You're professing an allegiance with your entire life. There are all sorts of moral commands that come along with that. Hold fast this confession without wavering. Do not give in. Do not succumb to the idea that this is not real, that this is a fairy tale. Stand firm in your faith. The writer is pleading, pleading with them. Hold fast the confession of your faith. And if you do let go of that confession, he's warning them, it's going to disorient you to all of life. Listen, there is this sense of promise right now that if you'll deconstruct your faith, you'll actually find life on the other side. It's a lie. It will actually dis disorient you to the rest of life. As C.S. Lewis said, it is by this, by the Son, that I see everything else. It is by your faith in Christ that you begin to see the world for what it is. Now the last invitation, the last plea is verse 16. And this is what wraps it all up. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus has become our high priest by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So each of our passages points to this. In Genesis chapter 3, God clothes Adam and Eve with the animal skins, making a sacrifice in the garden temple. Jesus, we're told, 
is crucified by a garden where his body will be placed. And he becomes the true sacrifice to clothe and cover our sins. Isaiah chapter 53, we're told, he shall bear their iniquities. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Listen, you and I have disobeyed God. I I, I could tell you all the ways that I've done it and not all of them. I could tell you many of them. And my disobedience has a cost. For it to be fully covered and forgiven, there's a cost with it. And you too have been disobedient. All of us have. And to admit that is not to mean that we absolutely become nothing and we denigrate ourselves. It's not. It's to actually receive the mercy of Christ as he's offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And as we're told in Isaiah 53 too, He makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, a priest serving to intercede for you. And so, the end of this verse, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So Adam and Eve, they sinned. They tried to make for themselves these loincloths and it didn't cut it. But what did God do? He helped them. He clothed them. To admit that you've been disobedient and then you failed means that you can come to God who desires to give you his grace and he'll cover you and he'll help you to become what he has made you to be, an image bearer, a child, a beloved of his creation. So this is what Jesus is calling us to do, to come before the throne of the Father and to receive his help. So this is the last part. Where where are you? Are you repeatedly coming before the throne of God to find his grace? Are you holding fast to the good confession of your faith without wavering? Or are you living in a pattern of disobedience? If you are, I hope that you'll recognize that that's only going to diminish your life. And at the end of your life, there will be a sense of judgment and not of joy. But if you'll come to Christ, there'll be forgiveness and there will be joy. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.